Amen. Thank you. <clears throat> Kelsey, is that your first time? Yeah. Jessica's the old pro. That was, that was Kelsey's first time. Outstanding. Grace like rain. May God's grace like rain fall upon us as we indulge ourselves in his holy, sacred word this morning. It's good to see everybody. It's a little chillier here this morning than it was last week. Uh, the weather in Virginia is kind of crazy, isn't it? It's been, maybe it's just me, but it seems to be even windier these days than, than the normal March winds. But I appreciate the Lord blowing you in here this morning into this place where we can all be a family and, and hail him as Lord. And that's why we're here. We're here because he's called us, he's redeemed us, and he is building us into the family of God. He's given us each other to do that, and he's given us his word to do that. And I trust that God's word will, will speak to our hearts this morning. And we are in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul in chapter 9, and we completed that little series on, on grace of giving. But he used the great example of the Macedonians' generosity in, in mustering up as much as they could to give and to meet needs of another church. He used that as an example to encourage the Corinthian church to do likewise. For the remaining of the chapters of this book, for the most part, he kind of shifts gears back to something he's already had to touch on. And that is what's happening in this church. He's writing about it. He's addressing real life issues that this church was facing. And one of the real life issues that they were facing is that false teachers had come into their church, had come into their church family and were trying to uh, persuade or win over the allegiance of the sheep. And so the Apostle Paul is not there. He's addressing these issues through his letters. But, but the false teachers are there and they are filling the Corinthians' minds with, with trash, in essence. And so Paul has to defend himself. And if you, if you look at these writings, and you'll see how reluctant the Apostle Paul is to actually defend himself. He doesn't want to talk about himself. And he only does it as a last resort because he realizes that his his life and his reputation is tied up in the gospel because he was the one that brought them the gospel. And so if they begin to write him off as a non-authority that has nothing of use to say, then they're cutting themselves off from the truth and they're giving themselves over to false teaching. And so for really the remainder of the chapters, we're going to be here and there. Paul's going to He's going to defend himself about something that they've said about it. But the amazing thing to me in these chapters is as he's defending himself, we are treated to profound kingdom truths that I don't think we would be treated to unless he was under these kind of awkward circumstances, unless he was under attack. It's because he was he's under attack. And in a sense, some of the, the gospel or the truths of the Bible is under attack that he, he feels the liberty and, of course, inspired through the Holy Spirit to say these things to the believers, to win them back and to keep them on the right track. So that's where we will be for the next several chapters. This morning, specifically, he is going to challenge our minds. Uh, he's going to remind our minds 
that when we do things, we don't just do them. There are deep down beliefs that we, we, we ascribe to that, that come up to the surface. And you see us on the surface. You see how we live or what we do, what we think, how we worship, how we don't worship, the choices we make in life. And he's going to remind us that, that, that the reason you see the things up here as you do are because of deep down um, thoughts, beliefs, philosophies, decisions, determinations that we have made. And that's why we react and do the things that we do. So we'll be challenged um, this morning and not next week because it will be a, a, a communion Sunday. But the sermon after that, I'm actually going to come back to this text and concentrate on what he means by destroying arguments and lofty opinions more specifically. So we will approach that as well. But we have assumptions and we operate according to assumptions. The Apostle Paul is going to challenge us with that this morning. Sometimes life is unnecessarily hard for us. And it's because we're operating on erroneous beliefs or assumptions of how things work, of how relationships work. And the, the important thing, I think, to understand about God in this passage is that God cares so much about our minds and our lives, and He wants our good to the extent that He will push us and press us to think hard about issues that we don't really want to think about because they make our brain hurt or they make our head hurt. And there's things in my life where I just assume, ah, oh, don't take me there, Lord. It just makes my head spin. And He's like, oh, no, you need to be here. I'm going I'm to push you. I'm going to nudge you. I'm going I'm to push your brain. To think through these things because you're not thinking right. And if you're not thinking completely right, you're robbing yourself of joy that could be had in the way I've created you. Let's read our text for this morning. Six verses in chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you. That when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And take every thought captive to obey Christ. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So, <clears throat> my first point, the language of the accused apostle. As I've stated, there are false teachers there. And you can, you can see... Uh, in this text, how he is forming his sentences. He's choosing what words to say. Some of it's he's being facetious. And some of it is just rock-solid truth. So when he talks about being humble face-to-face -face and then bold in his letters, 
There's an accusation made by these false teachers that are trying to undermine him. And they're basically saying, look, he's a guy. He, he's only bold when he's away from you because basically he's a little wimp. And face to face, he doesn't have the guts. He doesn't have the courage to back up what he says. But he just throws from a distance these truths or these, these accusations or corrections at you. So Paul's speaking facetiously. And he's saying, you know, don't, don't make me have to come over there in person. Because I will be bold in person. So he's kind of counter, countering that argument and the way they're trying to characterize him. And he's basically saying, no, I'm bold in my letters and I'll be bold when I get there in person too. Now, there are people that have that characterization, that kind of personality where very, very bold. Boy, you see some bold stuff on social media. When you don't have to face the person and you have this like safe distance. Whew, you've never seen somebody be so courageous. But in person, where are they? Hey, where did that person go? They don't want to have to deal with the reality of the situation. It's just a different dynamic. The Apostle Paul is not like that. He has more integrity in his life. What he says through his letters, he will, he will tell you face to face. So they assaulted his character in that way. And then also, we don't have the de- we're not treated to the details, but they've obviously accord, um, accused him of walking according to the flesh. Of all people, the Apostle Paul, accused of walking according to the flesh, of assaulting them according to the flesh, or ministering to the Corinthians, and it was a fleshly desire or a fleshly behavior that he was acting out. And it's interesting, that accusation, because... Uh, technically speaking, the Apostle Paul wrote the book on the deeds of the flesh. And he wrote the, the book or a book on deeds of the flesh. And he defined them. We find them in Galatians 5. If you hang around long enough in Sunday school, you will be treated to Galatians 5. And I'm sure within the next year or two. We're, we're in four already. No, I'm I'm picking on him. I take just as long to, to get through things in the royal treasury here. But when we get to that, and I'm sure uh, Professor Abernathy will treat us to a good sound teaching in this text. This is what we will read in verses 19 through 25. It's the Apostle Paul. And he says, now the deeds of the flesh. So when you talk about walking according to the flesh, it has something to do with this. The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, Indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to talk about what we're probably more familiar with and put to memory. The gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. So I actually, when I was reading this accusation about him walking in the flesh, I I couldn't remember where that was found in Scripture. Now, I can remember where the fruits of the Spirit are. Comes, come to find out they're in the same passage. But I had to do a quick Google search. Where is that again? Where did he say that again? And just for gee whiz information. So I type in... Deeds of the flesh come to find out there is a rock band uh, 
a brutal, death, heavy metal rock band that they call themselves Deeds of the Flesh. And there's also a, a tattoo parlor in Colorado <laughs> with a company name Deeds of the Flesh. So there's people. To, I, I wouldn't say that it's Bible based like the band or the tattoo parlor. I'm not saying they're Bible based purposely. But anyway, I think it's probably more of a rebellion. So, the, so the, that, that's the accusation. I don't know exi- exactly which one of those things they're accusing him of, but it has something to do with those. Maybe being argumentative, cause uh, some kind of troublemaker perhaps, or, or selfish gain in it just for the money. They're making things up, and they're slandering his character and undermining him. It's a smear campaign, if you will. We're used to those. But he says, in truth, and this is not as facetious because he ties it to Christ. He doesn't tie it to this false accusation of walking in the flesh and being timid and bold. Uh, But what is true about himself is he says, the way I approach you or entreat you in verse 1 is by meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he ties that back to not some rumor, but to scripture, to reality, to Christ. That's how I'm really treating you. So if, if don't mistake gentleness and meekness with cowardliness, because I will confront you if, if that's what's necessary and I'll do it face to face. I don't want to do it. I much prefer the gentle approach, the meek, the meek approach. I'm not looking for a fight in this sense. But see, it's a difference because gentleness and, and meekness, that's, that's power and authority, but it's under control. It's self-control. And Paul's saying, I don't have to attack you over every issue. I, would, I have self-control. And I think about you and your needs. I'm considered to you. It's not just about me. And all of that is being mistaken for walking in the flesh or misconstrued with that. And he says, look, if I have to, in verse 6, I'm, I'm ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. So in other words, uh, some of you may repent and see the error of your ways. But of, if there's a group of you in the family that does not, then I will have to come and address you. Because so, I want the whole family on board, the whole church on board with the truth. I don't want any of you believing lies. I want all of you living according to the truth, because that can uh, can ruin a church if you have just some of you that refuse to repent. So then he begins to get into his strategy. So if he doesn't walk according to the flesh, if he's not going to to be factious and violent and brutal, he's not going to go in person and just start pounding the false teachers. I'll take care of you. You give him a head, good old fashioned headbutt or something. Give him a concussion. So, so how is he going to handle this? And that's what he tells us. There's a strategy here that goes on. It's a kingdom strategy. It's a spiritual way to make war against, say, those who falsely accuse you or those who would undermine the truth. And really what it turns out to be is anything that doesn't line up to the standard of the knowledge of God. Anything that's not in line with the revelation of God. And his reality. The language of the rational mind. He's going to make us think. So, for though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What kind of strongholds? 
Well, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's wrong thinking and there's right thinking and the right thinking is what combats the wrong thinking. It's based on truth. It's not being manipulative to get your way. It's not using evil ways to overcome evil so that people will, begin, will believe the truth. It's using God's revelation. And it's mind against mind. It's the battle of the mind. There's no, really no other way to put this. It's a battle of the mind. It's thoughts. The mind, that's where, where our reasoning takes place, our ciphering. It's where we're, we're trying to understand life and make decisions, sometimes very, very important Decisions of how to do life. And if I do this, how will it affect me? What will the outcome be? And that's a spiritual realm. It's a battlefield. Our decision-making progress. What we see is true and false. Who we trust. What we trust. All of that is a battleground. And Paul puts it in war terms. He's saying we and our. We're going to pull this down. So it's a glimpse, if you will, of how... Heaven and earth are in this constant battle. And a lot of it takes place right in here of all places. My weakest spot. My weakest spot right here. My dad used to tell me when I was a kid, son, you have to work your brain like a muscle because it's like a muscle. And if you don't work it, it's going to get soft and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And, uh, I knew he was right, but I didn't want to work my brain. I just wanted to go with whatever kind of was natural that took no effort. Didn't want to push myself. But we're in a war. We're in a war. That's the biblical narrative. And our minds are right in the middle of it. We're in a war corporatively and we are in a war individually. So that's the battlefield. That's the truth, the Apostle Paul is saying. It's in the area of the intellect, the realm of thinking man. What was it, Socrates that said the unexamined life is not worth living? We have to think about these things. Man, there's a lot out there. What's the best way to do life? Thinking man. Some of you have probably seen that statue or at least a picture of it. But in a Paris museum, there is a large bronze statue of a naked man and he is sitting down and he's hunched over with his knee on his uh, I mean his elbow on his knee and his knee on his elbow he's thinking hard about this he's got you know his fist right here on his forehead that position that we all get into when we're thinking hard But that's the idea. It's thinking man. It's like, how do you uh, construct a statue that would show the the, the agony and the effort um, that goes into the creative mind at work? It's like this thinking position where where you problem solve and you cipher and you're you're trying to figure everything out. Well, that's the, the thinking man. And this battle is within the realm of thinking man. So I'm going to tackle most of that the next time we look at this passage, the arguments and the lofty opinions. I'm just going to kind of make mention of it here, but there's something that I want to spend the rest of our time this morning 
examining because there's something in here that is only implied. He doesn't say it straight out. He, he doesn't make it this point that he drives home, but he implies it, and it is profound. So I want to camp here for a little while. And that is in verse 5, when he says, Every thought must be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. What does that mean? Think about the implications of that one statement. I think it's, I think it's bold. It's, it's profound. And it can only mean one thing. And that is that if we are to take, if humanity is to take every thought captive to this one thing, that one thing must be sovereign and absolute. He's talking about absolute lordship. So who who gets to decide these things? Who gets to be the judge? To whom are we accountable? Even down to our every thought. You see how bold that statement is? In other words, you've heard the, um, uh, the smart aleck response. Who are you? The thought police. God's the thought police. And all of humanity answers to him. So it's a, the, the implication is, wait a minute, I, I have to answer to him. Well, if I have to answer to him in this way, then he must be like sovereign, absolute, the one and only God, the king of all things. So in this battle, there's this cosmic treason going on between the one to whom all humanity is accountable, and then you have all humanity. And all of humanity's thinking is not right. It's not in line to the standard of the knowledge of God of this one being of, of, and lordship here. Noah read this during our worship time, but Hebrews chapter 2 puts it like this. Thinking of, you're, you're looking at the absolute lordship over all things, all people at all times in Jesus Christ, the king. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's lordship, absolute lordship right there. So in other words, the, the battle that's taking place and what the king is doing is he is in the process of subjecting all things to himself because he's the king over all these things so he's gonna reign and rule over all of them and then the the author of hebrews gets practical and he says we don't see all things subjected to him because that's why there's still sin rampant that's why there are still thoughts that are not according to the knowledge of god because it's in process right now but the day will come and so we are in this process of subjecting even our thoughts it's, it's this cosmic level of, of battling where we don't always see it on the cosmic level, but we know that it's happening where God is confronting lies and error with truth all over the world as I speak. So it happens on that cosmic level, but it also happens on the individual level, one to one, one mind at a time, one thought at a time. That God wants to bring our thinking into subjection. With Christ, He knows that we're exposed to all these different philosophies and, and approaches to life about everything. He wants all of the things that we're confronted with 
to line up with what he says is true and right, what he knows is true or right, because he created all of it. Christ the King, apparently, according to the scripture, has the rights over what we think. That's the idea. He's sovereign. He has the rights over them. We, we owe him to think rightly, and he alone has that claim. We sang that in one of our worship songs this morning. Our breath, our praise goes to only him. That's why we have it, to go only to him, no other false god. This morning um, in our passage in Galatians chapter 4, we only went to 7, but in 8, you know, always looking ahead to see where Corky might be going, the Apostle Paul makes another profound statement, and he says, before you knew God, you were enslaved to things that weren't God's. Now, I found that very profound, because what he's saying is, when you know God, you've arrived. But before you know God, what you're doing is you're Worshipping other gods, you're living, uh, you're living in error. And you still have the same desires and longings in life, but you're going to the wrong places for them. And he calls it slavery. So he's not saying that, like, if you don't know God, you're in, in, a, in a different world. He's saying, no, you're still in this world that God created, but you're using yourself wrongly and you're thinking wrongly about things. You're worshipping the wrong things. You're desiring the wrong things. You still want marriage. But you're going about it wrong. You still want good relationships because you're creating the image of God. But you're going about it wrong. And and what happens is now you are enslaved to these things. But when you know God, you are actually set free. You still worship him. You're still his servant. But what you find out is his rules and his laws are liberating, not enslaving. It's a profound verse. So thinking man, everything is being put into subjection. And yes, on a personal level. So we think about this. God has established realms of authority in this world. He's established realms whereby individuals in different seasons of life for whatever circumstances are indeed accountable and owe respect, honor, and obedience to other individuals. God's established it that way. He's ultimate, but we have the, the sub-level realms here as well. So you think about parenting. God gives parents authority. Now, it's limited. There are things that we should not obey our parents with if they go against God. But children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord, Ephesians 6. So there's this concentrated focus. There's this concentrated source of leadership that parents have over their children. It's God-ordained. So there's that, that's around. So like if I, went to, um, if I went to the Gilmore's house, uh, visiting them, and they're all there, all the kids are there, and uh, I hear, I think, I, is Drake here this morning? Oh, Drake. I hear John. I'll, is John here this morning? All right, I hear John. Say something very disrespectful to Madison. And I'm just there as a guest. Maybe they've had, had us for dinner or something. And I hear John say something very disrespectful to Madison. And I approach him. I say, John, 
Shame on you. For saying that to your sister. You go right to your room right now. No, without dinner. Now that would be awkward, wouldn't it? Francis says, please come. Tell, tell my kids. <laughs> that would be awkward. Why? That's not my place. Now, maybe John did say that. I don't think John would ever do that. This is a silly example. But it would be awkward because that's not my place. I haven't been given that kind of authority over him. I mean, I could suggest maybe when I'm leaving or something, hey, you might want to take it a little easy. She's bigger than you on these things or something like that. But it's, I don't have that authority. But there's a realm there that God has established. We also have the realm of government. God has established governments as crooked and corrupt as they can be. God is in control of these things. This realm, it's a realm of obedience, he says, that he has established. And there's a, sense, a certain level of honor, respect that is owed or due. Everyone, Romans 13, must submit himself to governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Makes it plain and clear. That's, again, that's limited as well. Right? So a, a police officer has every right to pull me over if I am exceeding the speed limit that has been set by law. And there's a sense in which for me to use the roads, it's kind of like a contract that we enter into. Uh, you have permission to use the transportation system if you abide by these laws because that's how we keep peace and order and everybody can use them safely as possible. If you're going to go out there and do your own thing and put yourself in danger and everybody else in danger, you can't do that. So we have to keep law and order. I, I owe that, that respect there. Um, that's their realm. They can write me up. But if that officer, you know, if he comes to my window and he's writing me up and he says, here's your ticket, now I'm going to see you in court. And when I see you in court, you better have a different haircut because that one is ugly. That's not his realm, right? He can't tell me that. I don't have to answer to that. He tells me, you got to go on a diet. Well, look, that's not your realm to tell me that. But I will be in court because I did violate this. So there's, there's certain respect and honor that's due. We also have uh, a lot of unwritten obligations that we're under, we sense. And we know they're there. And that's like when somebody really treats you with tremendous kindness... Uh, unwritten, it's like this obligation to in some way reciprocate. Just the, the goodness of humanity. All over the world this happens. Right? We just, we just know it. They've earned it in some way. It's like this unwritten, even a moral obligation to, to do something uh, for this person. So on a small scale, we see it in our culture. For instance, when... Uh, you might compliment a, a, a military man or service man. You might say, thank you for your service or a military person. Thank you for your service. I appreciate the sacrifices that you made. And I, and I feel a moral obligation to at least let them know that. And some companies go so far as to say military 10% off because you're military. It's a way of saying thank you. And they feel like it's I, I kind of I want to do this for you. It's owed. And to not say something, to not recognize you in this way would just be wrong. It could be law enforcement as well. Or, for instance, if, uh, if you have a very, very 
uh, wealthy aunt and lives right next door to you. Uh, and your family couldn't afford it, but this wealthy aunt paid for your college education. You just graduated. Paid it all. Very godly, generous aunt of yours. And then she breaks her leg and can't cut her own grass now and asks you, um, would, would you mind, look, I, until I can find somebody else to, to, to do this for me, could you cut my grass? Now, wh- what are you going to say to that? You can't say no. Aunt Tootsie, I can't cut your grass. I can't. I'm too busy. I mean, this person just invested in you. And it would, you, anybody in here would look at that situation and say, it is morally wrong for you not to cut her grass. Get over there. We're crying out loud. So there's these realms where respect and honor is due. We know it's due. It's either established for, maybe it's established on the outside, maybe it's coming from the inside, but we know it exists. It's for the good. So Jesus has this absolute authority. And it's a moral authority as well. And when it comes to him, because of who he is, we owe him everything. And there's for different reasons why this is true. Now, from a Christian standpoint, we know that Scripture says he has given it all, he's paid it all, and therefore it just makes logical sense in the place that we make our decisions since he's given us all, that we should reciprocate in some way. It would be morally wrong to not make some effort. Of course, we can't. We're not God. But to not make some effort to return that. The Apostle Paul makes this argument in Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, This is your spiritual act of worship. So he's saying, think about this. Offer your bodies. Why? As a form of worship. Why? Because of what Christ has done for you. And and NIV says it's reasonable. In other words, think about it. Just think about the way things have been set up and what he's done. It's reasonable for us to offer ourselves to him based on what he's done for us. And then it goes on. In the second verse to talk about uh, transforming your mind, renewing your mind. Or we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. So it's the way we think and approach life because Christ exists and he died for our sins. So you see, kingdom ground is gained or lost right here based on how I look at things and live out my days. And... God is after clear, pure, clean, biblical knowledge of God thinking. And it's due him that we think clearly. It's due him that we wrestle to understand his greatness. To wrestle to understand the revelation that he has given us. To understand how merciful he is. To understand what it means that he has saved us or adopted us justified us. So the Lordship, what's due, is true from our perspective as believers. We understand the cross. But it's true for all humanity. There's a, there's a Lordship that's due. Why? 
because he's our creator. He created us. And by virtue of the fact that he brought us into existence by his power, by his love, by his might, we owe him. We would not exist. We would have no experience, no consciousness of any kind, no joy of any kind if he did not create us. So we are a product of him. That we got, we're grateful because we're born again, but we owe him because we were born in the first place. How did he get, you know, how did he get this power on what grounds? He created us. It reminds me of our series in Psalm 100. That God gives us rules to keep beautiful things beautiful. And it says that flat out states in Psalm 100, he made us. And there's a lot of other passages there. He who made us. And we want to embrace this truth. But understand this in in the place of your thinking. It's dangerous truth. This is dangerous. Because if we say, yes, I get it. And it's reasonable. Then what we're saying is it's just makes sense. And I have a moral obligation to live my entire life and think every thought for the king. Now, that's a dangerous thought, isn't it? To draw that conclusion. Yes, I owe my whole life to this one king. That's life altering. But it's also dangerous the other direction. For me to say, well, no, I don't owe that king. I don't acknowledge that king. Why is that dangerous? Because that means if he's real and true, and then I have to live my life, or at least parts of it, as a lie. I have to live under delusion and deception that I don't owe anybody anything. And that's life changing. So either way we go, it's dangerous thinking, but we're pushed. Scripture will push us to make a decision. Of course, for our own good. So ownership has to do with with origins. That's that's the logic here. Think about this thought police statement is it true which one is it do i exist because someone or something thoughtfully uh, mindfully intelligently lovingly brought me into existence or do i exist as a accidental chemical splat it, it makes a difference how I view myself. It makes a difference how I view you. It makes a difference what morality system I choose to live by. All the decisions that we're faced with in social media, with our government, worldwide wars, all the culture wars, cancel, all that stuff, there are philosophies and thinking. The philosophies of the professor. They don't stay in the classroom. They rain down. You get a sprinkle here and a sprinkle here. And they rain down into our minds through culture, through the arts. And that's the logic. So was I created by a creator? Therefore, I owe him everything. Or was I some kind of cosmic mistake? And therefore, I don't owe anybody anything. There's no purpose or meaning or obligation to my life if I was just a splat of some kind. 
and accents. So think about, for example, the thinking man statue. You have this statue that was brought into existence. Somebody thought about how can I characterize thinking man and, and, and the labors that go into it, making tough decisions. And he came up with this bronze statue and a, a posture of a man processing thoughts in this way. And so he, he had this vision and he brought it into fruition in real life. And now you have this material thing that you can look at and it communicates and there's a message behind it. But everything is in its proper place according to his plan and his vision. The posture and his, his eyes, the nakedness has some purpose in it. I don't know. I didn't look it up, but must be something there for him. Maybe that man's just vulnerable and stripped down and, and has to think his way through these through this life. So, and if you think about that person crafting that statue, you have that purpose in there, but there were probably bronze shavings or shillings, or if it was formed and melted and formed into some kind of poor system, then whatever overflowed, it just fell to the floor. That's the scraps. That's the shavings or the shillings. There was no design for those. That just was the overflow. There's no thought into that. That's in the way. So what do you do with with the accident? What do you do with the overflow, the things that that, that didn't have any purpose or meaning in mind? Well, whatever you want, right? I mean, it's just scrap now, like the sawdust if you build furniture in your shop. What do I do with it? I sweep it up. I get rid of it. Or I might put glue and make it into to wood dough or something. You can do whatever you want with it. Make a doorstop out of it. But the point is it doesn't even matter. You flush it down the toilet, it doesn't even matter. Because it wasn't designed with any kind of purpose. So there's a difference in how things are approached. Are we some kind of cosmic accident? We're, we, we weren't brought into existence for any particular reason, so we're not headed any particular place. Or... Is it just the opposite? Everything about us was perfectly thought through and designed. And not just for our creator, but for our greatest joy, because our creator actually takes joy in our happiness as part of his plan. If not, we gotta, we're left to create everything on our own. We've got to create our own meaning, our own morality. It's just our sense of family. I mean, we see that it's what's happening in our culture. When you throw out these truths, then you're left on your own to think through it, agonize. Wait a minute, what is family? Why do we even have family? What's it supposed to look like? What is marriage? Why do we even have it? What's it supposed to look like? Is it good or bad? And you get all over the spectrum. Accountability versus no accountability. And this scripture says it's absolutely reasonable. As a matter of fact, there is a moral obligation for us to be what we were created to be, what we were meant to be, what was in the mind of our creator. It matters. One more example. Why does it matter? Put yourself in this position where you have this idea. I mean, your most impressive, creative mental powers came to fruition at one moment or perhaps after months and months of hard work and you have this idea and it's great and it's so great you want to share it with the world and you can see how it would be a blessing to everyone and how you can take joy over it. 
And it would, it's valuable to you because you're the originator. You're the one that has the vision for it. And it's exceptional. Exceptional. And because it's your baby, you get the rights over it. You get to say how it looks, what the final outcome is going to be. It's your design according to your will. It bids your will. Is, does that really matter? Well, there was a, uh, there's this platform out there. Probably none of you have heard of it, but it's called Facebook. <laughs> and there was a guy, it was his brainchild, right? Does it really matter about origins and who owns things and who has the rights over things? Well, we're aware aware of Facebook, and I know that it has its ups and downs, but it has been a blessing to the entire world in in keeping people in touch. Now, it can be used for evil or used for good, but obviously, it's very popular. People like it. It's a masterpiece of social media, you might say. But not everybody's happy about that. You see, there were others that have sued in real life Mark Zuckerberg. Is that right? Um, Because they said, no, I had that idea first. That was my idea and he stole it. It was my brainchild. I thought of it. I did the work. I was the thinking man on this. He stole it. So he has faced some, it's in the past now, but he faced it. The the Winklevoss brothers sued him. And then later, a, a Harvard student, um, Aaron Greenspan, said it was his idea. So they went through all of that. Why does it matter? Well, even in our own world, we have what's called copyright laws. Like, we recognize that's just wrong for you to steal other people's ideas or steal it away or make it into something that it was not meant to be made into. Copyright, a type of intellectual property that projects original works of authorship as soon as an author fixes the work in a tangible form of expression. In copyright law, there are a lot of different types of work, including paintings, photographs, illustrations, musical compositions, sound recordings, computer programs, books, poems, blog, poets, posts, movies, architectural works, plays, etc., etc., So we recognize this ownership. This can look like what I want it to look like. You can't change it, right? Or it's just wrong. So you see the logic here? The accountability? Am I accountable only to myself? Or if somebody brought me into existence with a specific design design and manner, then am I accountable to my? Creator, because how I answer that question is going to determine how I spend my time. It's going to determine how I spend my money. It's going to determine how I work in the first place. How I define the emotions and the affections I have or don't have towards certain things or people. So when the Apostle Paul says that every thought must be taken to the captive to the obedience of Christ, that can only mean. Because our creator owns every single thing that we produce down to our very smallest thought. He is our absolute sovereign. And he wants us to be enjoyed by himself and enjoyed by others because we are his and he created us 
in that way. So what are we living for? We're enslaved to something, Scripture says. What are we paying homage to? Where do we feel our obligations? See, Christ will push us to think through things. Make us miserable, at least for a while, to push us towards the truth that liberates us. And he wants us to see that it makes sense. Life does make sense. There is an order to it. There is an intelligent design to it. It makes perfect sense that we should live for him. It makes perfect sense that we can wake up each day with joy in our hearts because he exists and he is subduing all things under his kingship. He wants us to be able to recognize the thoughts that we think that are not according to the knowledge of God. That will only serve to enslave us. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Thinking rightly is part of what it means to be a Christian. We can't be sloppy in this. We can't just go with the flow because it's an easy thing to do like I wanted to do as a kid. We just can't feel our way through time and space according to our gut feeling. And we can't just settle on easy answers that really don't answer the questions that people are asking. So there are lofty opinions and there are arguments raised against God, he says. Some of them may be in our own heads. Perhaps we have some thinking to do. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.